So today's sermon is about the Church of Pergamos. So for our visitors and for everyone that's watching on, online, I did a sermon about 12 years ago about the seven churches of Revelation. And I did it all in one sermon, so I had to quickly go through because it was a lot of material. So what I decided to do was to break those churches out into seven sermons. Well, actually, it was eight sermons because we did John the Revelator. So that we could go into deeper um, to, to in, deeper into what was actually happening in each of those churches. And so today we're into the third church, which is the Church of Pergamos. And um, we live in these last days, um, which is basically the fulfillment of prophecy. And prophecy is so important because everybody always asks, prove, prove that the scripture is true, prove um, that the Lord is coming back. Prove, prove, prove. Well, prophecy is proof because these prophecies were given thousands of years ago, you know, and they've all come true. And now the last prophecy to be fulfilled is the second coming of Christ. And so I want to give a disclaimer because up until this point, we have not talked about uh, what we're going to talk about today, and that is the Catholic Church. And so I want to give this disclaimer and I'm going to give it going forward. If you are a Catholic or if you are a person to have Catholic members, what we're talking about are not individual people. We're not talking about, um, we're not trying to disparage our, our Christians in the Catholic Church because there are good, God-fearing people in every church. There are people who are doing the best they can to serve the Lord. What we're talking about is the seat and the papal um, organization, the way the decrees and the bylaws and the way it was ran. We're talking about history, what actually happened, because we're about to go into the dark ages in the future sermons. And so I just want to make that disclaimer. We are, this is not a disparagement on, on Catholics, because when God comes back, he's going to have a lot of Catholics and everyone in every church is going to be lifted up with him. So if you want to go back and watch the old sermons, Go to our YouTube channel, and on May 8th, we did a sermon about John the Revelator, the person who wrote this. Wrote, uh, wrote this. And uh, on July the 2nd, we talked about the Church of Ephesus. On August 6th, um, the last sermon I did, it was a, the Church of Smyrna. And this is the Church of Pergamos. And the significance of the letters uh, was that they were actually churches that existed at the time that, that these that these letters were written, and but they don't they weren't just letters to churches that existed at that time. They were also prophecy about time periods that existed from that period that they were in, all the way to our time now, which is actually Laodicea, the Church of Laodicea. And if you when you're reading Revelation, if you understand the churches. What you're about to see is like a, a preview of what's, what was about to happen from the time of John until now. And the seven churches were actually located in Asia Minor. Let me see here. Okay. Um, and if you're wondering where that is in today's world, think about the country of Turkey. It's around the Mediterranean Sea. And um, there's the island of Patmos is an island um, that it, that was that's right there on the east coast of Turkey. All right. 
So in modern day times, we're talking about Turkey. This is in the area of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iran, uh, Saudi Arabia. That's the, that's the part of the world we're talking about here. Um, this is another uh, picture of that. So if you just want to go home and look up this place, this is where it is. Okay, so the church of Ephesus was um, from the time period of 31 A.D. until the 100 A.D. And this was the, the, the first church. This was the pure church. Um, this is when they had that first love. All right? Let me go back. It was the first love. These people... They, they, most, a lot of these people had met, had met Christ, and they loved Christ, and they, 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 they had the first works. They, they, they went out, and they tried to do what God said. And um, if you want to know more about what happened in the church, go back to that sermon. But following this church from the period of 100 A.D. to 313 A.D. Um, was the church that was persecuted by Diocletian, Emperor Diocletian. And in that sermon that I did, we went through the, what, what was happening from the early period until the time of that 10-year persecution. It was 10 years of persecution by the, by, the Roman, by the Romans. And we talk about how that gradually came to be and how it happened. Um, but this was one of the churches that he didn't have anything to say because those Christians did what Christ asked him to do. So, and I'm quickly going through this because I got, I'm trying to cover those old churches in this one. Okay. So this is the Church of Pergamos. It's from 313 A.D. to 538 A.D. This is when it was the rise of the papal power. And Pergamos means lifted up. Constantine, what basically happens is Constantine um, converts to Christianity. And when he converts to Christianity, he begins this process of, of making Christianity popular in the realm. Until paganism and Christianity joins together, which gives the power to the papacy. So Constantine is very important. And these images are a recreation of what they think he looked like. That's that's the statue and that's that's, uh, what they recreated. But basically, that's what's happening in this period. And so we're going to read about that going forward. So basically, every every church has like a spiritual message. And in Ephesus, it was return to thy first love. In Smyrna, it was be faithful unto death because so many people, so many Christians were martyred and, and, and died during that time. And in Pergamos, it was remain faithful, do not compromise. Because what you're going to see is that this is the compromising church um, that he has. Okay, so if you will, you can either read it up here or open up your Bibles to Revelations chapter 2. And we're going to read uh, 12 through 17. Actually, I'll tell you what, we have time. I'm going to read a summary of Ephesus and Smyrna for our visitors, since we have visitors here today, where it's a summary of, uh, of each church and what, what was happening. Ephesus is the first, and it was the church of John's time. Its time was from Jesus' resurrection to around the death of the last apostles. This early church was pure and eager to spread the truth about about Jesus to the entire world. They watched carefully so that those who were false-hearted and meant to sneak in and do the church harm were sent away, and the true believers were carefully taught. 
The early apostolic church carried the gospel to all the then known world before the last of the apostles died. They suffered persecution and many died for their faith. Their eagerness to obey Jesus' command to teach all nations carried them to the ends of the earth. We see that already there was a problem in this church. Jesus said they had left their first love. By John's day, they had come into the church, those who want to rule and tell others what to do. Paul said the mystery of iniquity was already at work in his day. They started to look to men and not as much to Jesus and his word as they were had been at first. Jesus warned them to go back to their first love or he removed their, their candlestick and they would cease to be his people. The Nicolaitans were followers of a teacher named Nicholas, called Nicholas. He, who began, among other things, to teach that the death of Christ on Calvary had done away with God's Ten Commandments, uh, Ten Commandment law, and it was now no longer necessary to keep the law of God. This doctrine is also taught in our day. Some claim that the gospel of Christ was made the law of God of no effect; that by believing, we are released from the necessity of being doers of the word. This is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Christ so unsparingly condemned. Some historians say that the teachings of this group also brought in the idea that the clergy or ministers were separate from the laity or people who should rule over them. Of course, that idea is as old as paganism because paganism always taught that ideal, um, taught that idea and used it to oppress and rob the common people. Jesus says clearly, we are all brethren. No kingly power is to be found among the people. Basically, that, 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 that belief is once you accept Christ, then, it's, then you're done. You don't have to do anything else. You, once you believe and accept, you don't have to follow the law. You can do whatever you want. You're good. And there's a lot of people who believe that way in our time today. They, they, they believe as long as they say, I believe in Jesus Christ and I accept whatever, then they go do whatever they want to do. They're not trying to follow any laws. That is not actually true. And God condemns that. So that's what was actually starting to come into the, to the church um, in the first church, they had left their first love. And in that sermon, we went through a list of ways. What is your first love? How do you leave your first love? And how do you return to your first love? So I recommend to go back and, and, and listen to that. All right. The Smyrna church. Um, this was from 100 to 313 A.D. Smyrna means a sweet smell like a perfume. This was a time when God's people went through a terrible persecution by the emperor Diocletian. They would have tribulation 10 days and prophecy a, a day represents a literal year. This refers to the 10 years of persecution under pagan Rome from AD from 303 AD to 313 AD, where thousands were slain. Their faithfulness as they stood uh, for his truth was like a sweet perfume to God. So some of the people in the first church had not gone back to their first love. Most had. And now in this church, they stood bravely for the truth. This is one church that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. The 10 days here mentioned are 10 prophetic years. Persecution has a way of making the church very pure because selfish, ease-loving people are afraid to join it. And those who do, who do are ready to die for it. There were many martyrs during the ten, those 10 years. And if we are faithful, we will meet them when Jesus comes and raises them to take them home with all of his people. There are some in the beginning of the time of this church who were pretending to be Christians, but were not, and were just there to harm the church. Because this is a prophecy, Jews here means Christian believers, because the death of Jesus, the real Jews were no longer God's special people. The 10-day persecution, no doubt, got rid of many of the false ones that were quickly, were quick, would quickly leave. 
The promise to this church was that if faithful, they would not be hurt by the second death. This means they would be raised to have eternal life. How kind Jesus was to point out to these dear people going through this terrible time that he had been dead and rose again. So they, if faithful, would also. Okay. So basically, during this period of persecution, this is how God brings his church back. Have you ever noticed when you read the Bible, the church will sway away from God and then a persecution will happen and they'll come back. Because what happens is when we are going through trials and tribulations, when we're going through the fire, you are forced to either come back to God or to abandon him completely. And that is why whenever we are straying away, he will allow us to go through those trials because we need to remember that we have to put our complete and other faith in him. And that is what was happening with Smyrna. The church came back. And they, 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 the people who were there just to act like they were Christians or to lead people astray, they fell away from the church because they didn't want to go through that persecution. And these people went through 10 years of a terrible persecution. So now, now uh, we come to the next period, which is now the church of, uh, of Pergamos, that right after that period, Constantine um, becomes a Christian. So I'm going to read chapter, Revelation 2, 12 to 17. The compromising church and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write these things uh, says he who was the sharp to edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell where Satan where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was uh, Antipas, I'm sorry, I can't say his name, was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is this thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and I will f- and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, so he's telling them to remain faithful. Pergamos, the, doctr- the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was that the idea that the death of Jesus on the cross meant God's law um, no longer mattered. Once saved, always saved. Popular when false doctrines are being introduced to God's church. And Balaam was the one who led Israel into joining with idol worshipers, if you remember back in the Old Testament. Committing fornication was the church seeking empowerment from the government to enforce its doctrines. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the idea that the death of Jesus on the cross meant God no, no longer matters. So, okay, sorry, I got the wrong. I got the same one. But anyways... If, does anybody here have a good understanding what, about Constantine? Do you kind of understand what happened with Constantine? He was the uh, son of a, uh, one of the four uh, emperors. Um, his thing, I think his dad was named Constantius or whatever. I can't say his name either. But basically, he was going into battle. This is the, this is the, the, the fable. He went into battle, and he, when he was going into battle, he saw in the sky the, the symbol of the cross. All right, that you know that's why I call it a favor. We don't know if this is true or not. But after seeing that, he decided that Christianity, that God had given him 
the uh, the authority and that, that they would be that he would win and that they would be uh, successful. And then he converts to Christianity. But you got to remember in Rome, paganism is in power and Christianity is just a subsect of people um, that were had just gone through a persecution. So what he does is he starts to come up with ways that he's going to bring Christianity and make it the official religion of the realm. Okay. So that's what that's what that was what happened there. And so let me read to you um, Pergamus. Pergamus means lifted up. This was when Constantine pretended to be a Christian and it began to be popular to be a nominal Christian. This church covers the period of 323 to 538 or 313 to 538. During this time, we see the rise of the papal power, the idea that the bishop of Rome should rule the entire world as a god on earth. This letter is addressed to those who were clinging to the truth and not going along with the wrong that was coming into the Christian church. In all these um, letters, we notice that Jesus does not see as people see. He does not recognize the ones who have rejected his truth and are bringing in their own ideas as his church. One of the things Jesus was telling these people were that they were doing wrong, was that they were allowing the people who had the wrong ideas to stay and teach error among them. We see here the worship of idols coming in and the faithful martyr Antipasus dying for his faith. Who was this? It was just one person, but meant those who refused to go along with the idea of the Bishop of Rome being the Papa or Pope of all the churches. Many were killed or had to flee into exile for their lives. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the idea that the death of Jesus on the cross meant God's law no longer had to be kept. The doctrine always became popular when Satan is busy bringing in false doctrines and practices that don't belong in the true worship of God. It gets people saying or thinking, well, it doesn't really matter so much that what I do because uh, because I mean, well, it doesn't really matter so much what I do. It doesn't really matter so much what I believe. I only have to believe in Jesus and I am sure to go to heaven. It was popular when the early church was being corrupted into apostasy and it is very popular now. Balaam was the one who led Israel into joining with pagan idol worshipers to celebrate their feast and holy days. Committing fornication meant that the church was starting to seek power from the government to enforce her decrees. The true church is to seek only the power that comes from Jesus and is not to try to force uh, force anybody. This sword um, of his mouth is the word of God, the Bible, which is what is used to expose wrong practice in the church. And so the promise, which I'll read again. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that received it. Revelations 2.17 Jesus promises those who remain faithful that they would eat of the hidden manna and have a white stone with a new name. The hidden manna meant several things. The first one was the assurance that God would feed and care for them even if they had to flee into the wilderness like ancient Israel was fed as they wandered in the wilderness. It also meant that even though their leaders and missionaries, uh, ministers were proving false and, that, and they were not being given spiritual food in the failing church, Jesus himself would give them spiritual food and be their teacher. That is the same for us today.
The white stone with the new name meant they would be members of the heavenly church, even though they were being thrown out of the wicked church that was claiming to be God's true church. And they had to flee for their lives into the wilderness. White means that Jesus would see them as pure, even though the leaders of the now corrupt church declared them to be black with sin because they would not be slaves to false doctrines or give up obeying what was right and obey those apostate leaders. Okay. And so to fully illustrate um, what actually happened once this, once that, once Constantine became a Christian, what we're going to start to see is this slow, um, gradual movement from paganism to paganism and Christianity to Christianity in power, which then marked the beginning of the 1260 years that goes into the Dark Ages. And what I'm going to, we're going to go now is over Ellen G. White in The Great Controversy. She talks about this in Chapter 3, and I got just a part of that chapter here. But she goes into what actually happened um, and if you want to read that, just go to that book. That's why I said that. Okay, so let's go. The Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, foretold the great apostasy, which would result in the establishment of the papal power. He declared that the day of Christ should not come, except there come a falling away first, and that the man of sin would um, be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worship. So that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And furthermore, the apostle warns his brethren that the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, 3, 4, and 7. Even at that early date, he saw creeping into the church errors that would prepare the way for the development of the papacy. Little by little, um, at first in stealth and silence, and then more openly as it increased in strength and gained control of the minds of men, the mystery of iniquity carried uh, forward its deceptive and blasphemous work. Almost imperceptibly, the customs of hedonism found their way into the Christian church. The spirit of compromise and conformity was restrained for a time by the fierce persecutions which the church endured under paganism. That was the church of Smyrna. But as persecution ceased and Christianity entered its courts and palaces of kings, she laid aside the humble simplicity of Christ and his apostles for the pomp and pride of pagan priests and rulers. And in place of the requirements of God, she substituted human theories and traditions. The nominal conversion of Constantine in the early part of the 4th century caused great rejoicing, and the world, quote, with a form of righteousness walked into the church. Now the work of corruption rapidly progressed. Paganism, while appearing to be vanquished, became the conqueror. Her spirit controlled the church. Her doctrines and ceremonies and superstitions were incorporated into the faith and worship of the professed followers of Christ. This compromise between paganism and Christianity resulted in the development of the man of sin foretold in prophecy as opposing and exalting himself above God. That gigantic system of false religion is a masterpiece of Satan's power, a monument of his efforts to seat himself upon the throne to rule the earth according to his will. And just as an example, remember, they had statues of pagan gods and goddesses all around Rome, right? So, One way that they brought the two together was that they simply, they didn't tear the statues down. They renamed them after the apostles and said, this is now the apostle whoever. So you satisfy the paganism, but you also satisfy the Christians because now you're, you're, you're praising the apostles instead of persecuting them. 
and this is about the man sin. It is one of the leading doctrines in Romanism that the Pope is the visual head of the universal church of Christ, invested with supreme authority over bishops and pastors in all parts of the world. More than this, the Pope has given the very title of deity. He has been styled Lord God the Pope and has declared infallible. His demands, he demands the homage of all men. The same claim urged by Satan in the wilderness of temptation and is still urged um, by him through the Church of Rome. And vast numbers are, re- are readily to um, yield him homage. Romanists have persisted in bringing pe- against Protestants the charge of heresy and willful separation from the true church. But these accusations apply rather to themselves. They are the ones who laid down the banner of Christ and departed from the faith which was once delivered upon the saints. Jude chapter 3. Satan knew that the Holy Scriptures would enable men to discern his deceptions and withstand his power. It was by the word that, that even the Savior of the world had resisted his attacks. At every assault, Christ represented the shield of eternal truth, saying, It is written. To every suggestion of the adversary, he opposed the wisdom and power of the word. In order for Satan to uh, maintain his sway over men and establish the authority of the papal usurper, he must keep them in ignorance of the Scripture. The Bible would exalt God and place finite, finite men in their true position. Therefore, its sacred truths must be concealed and suppressed. This logic was adopted by the Roman church. For hundreds of years, the circulation of the Bible was prohibited. The people were forbidden to read it or have it in their houses, or an unprincipled priest and prelates intercepted his teachings to sustain their pretensions. Thus, the Pope came to be almost universally acknowledged as the vice, uh, vice gerent on earth, um, of God on earth, endowed with authority over the church and state. So Satan said, Satan went to Christ and he offered him all the world if he would but acknowledge him as the ruler of that world. And what did Christ do? He said, it is written. He used the word of God to rebuke, uh, rebuke Satan. And then Satan finally left him alone because he realized what he was doing was fruitless. So then Satan said, okay, if Jesus won't do this, I'll go to man. So he went to man and said, I will give you all the world, but you must um, choose me as the rule of this world, essentially what he's doing. And what did man say? Oh, yes, we'll do that. <laughs> That's basically what's happened here. And so the first thing that Satan had, had these men of power do was to get rid of the Bible. He prohibited the owning and to the spreading of the gospel and the word and kept to keep people in ignorance so that they could not use it the same way Jesus used it in the wilderness. That was the first thing that he did here. Okay. So the detector of error having been removed, Satan worked according to his will. Prophecy had declared that the papacy was to think to change times and laws. Daniel seven twenty five. This work, it was not slow, not slow to attempt to afford converts from heathenism, a substitute for the worship of idols, and thus promote their nominal acceptance of Christianity. The adoration of images and relics was gradually introduced into the Christian worship. The decree of a general council finally established this system of idolatry. To complete the sacrilegious work, Rome presumed to expunge the law of God, the second commandment, forbidding image worship, and to divide the tenth commandment in order to preserve the number. The spirit of concession to paganism opened the way for a still further disregard, to, for a still further disregard of heaven's authority. 
Satan, working through unconsecrated leaders of the church, tampered with the fourth commandment also, an essay to set aside the ancient Sabbath, the day which God had blessed and sanctified, Genesis 2, 2 and 3, and in his stead to exalt the festival observed by the heathen as the vulnerable day of the sun. This change was not at first attempted openly. In the first centuries, the true Sabbath had been kept by all Christians. They were jealous for the honor of God, and believing that his law was immutable, they zealously guarded the sacredness of his precepts. But with gradual, but with great subtlety, Satan worked through his agents to bring about his object, that the attention of people might be called to the Sunday, and it was made a festival in honor of the resurrection of Christ. Religious services were held upon it, yet it was regarded as a day of recreation, the Sabbath still, um, the Sabbath being still sacredly observed. So, he didn't just come in and say, we're not doing the Sabbath anymore, <laughs> we're going to observe Sunday. He said, no, 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 Christians, keep the Sabbath. But we're also going to make Sunday a festival, a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And for a period, like decades, that's what they've done, even centuries. They, had, they, they observed both. Because Satan is patient. He, like, he will work a plan for centuries if he has to do that. But he knows what his objective is. He was going to change it. And the only way he had to do it, to where people wouldn't revolt against it was to gradually bring it in by by making it accepted by both Christianity and with paganists. That's that's what that was about. And so, but here's what's interesting. Ellen G. White's about to talk about. He had been working on this plan long before this, and here's how he was doing it. To prepare the work, way for the work which he designed to accomplish, Satan had led the Jews before the advent of Christ to load down the Sabbath with the most rigorous exactions, making an observance a burden. Now, taking advantage of the false light in which he had thus caused to be, to, um, for it to be regarded, he cast contempt upon it as a Jewish institution. While Christians generally con- uh, continue to observe the Sunday as a joyous festival, he led them in order to show their hatred of Judaism, Judaism to make the Sabbath a fast, uh, a fast, a day of sadness and gloom. Wow. Like I said, he will work. He will work for long periods of time. He basically made the Sabbath something that we we didn't want to observe because it was too burdensome. And then once he put the the uh, the uh, opposite, made the uh, the Sunday a festival, a day of celebration. Which one do you think the uh, the average Christian or even a pagan? Which one do you think the people are going to gradually go towards the celebration? They're not going to want to be burdened down with this rigorous Sabbath. And there's a lot of people today who still think of the Sabbath as a burden. Grown-ups, with our kids, everything that's, that's planned out for entertainment is done when? On the weekends. When? Friday night and Saturday. We don't want our children to be, to be doing those things. We want them to be observing the Sabbath. So when we say you can't go out with your friends and do all this stuff because we need you to be worshiping the Lord, what do our children see the Sabbath as? A burden. So when they get a little taste of freedom, when they get away from home, they a lot of them go wild. But a lot of them stray away slowly because they're enticed into the celebration and the festivals. Satan's tactics work today just as good as they worked back then. He knows what he's doing. 
So, um, in the early part of the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine issued a decree making Sunday a public festival throughout the Roman Empire. The Day of the Sun was rever- reverenced by his pagan subjects and was honored by Christians. It was the emperor's policy to, re- to unite the conflicting interests of heathenism and Christianity. He was urged to do this by the, by the bishops of, of the church, who, inspired by ambition and thirst for power, perceived that if the same day was observed by both Christians and heathen, it would promote the nominal acceptance of Christianity by pagans and thus advance the power and glory of the church. But while many God-fearing Christians were gradually led to regard Sunday as possessing a degree of sacredness, they still held true the Sabbath as the holy of the Lord and absorbed it in obedience to the fourth commandment. So the, the, the bishops, the people who were aspiring to power, they saw, wait a minute, we need to grow our congregation. But who do we need to grow our congregation by? The pagans. So we can rule over all of them. So what, that's where this, this plan came into the, to effect. They, they, they kept the Sabbath as the observance of the, the, the actual Sabbath to hold the Christians. But they, they established the Sunday to bring the pagans in. And then later, they changed the law and brought everybody together on the Sunday. That's basically what they did. And then the archdeceiver had not completed his work he was resolved to gather the Christian world under his banner and to exercise his power through his vicegerent, the proud pundit who claimed to be the representative of Christ. Through half-converted pagans, ambitious relates, and world-loving churchmen, he accomplished his power, purpose. Vast councils were held from time to time in which the dignitaries of the church were convened from all, all over the world. And nearly every council, the Sabbath which God had instituted, was pressed down a little bit lower, while the Sunday was con- correspondingly exalted. Thus, the pagan pet festival became finally to be honored as a divine institution, while the Bible Sabbath was pronounced a relic of Judaism, and his observers were declared to be accused, declared to be accursed. The great apostate has succeeded in exalting himself above all that is called God or that is worship, 2 Thessalonians 2.4. He had had dared to change the only precept of the divine law that unmistakably points all mankind to the true and living God. In the fourth commandment, God is revealed as the creator of the heavens and the earth and is thereby distinguished from all false gods. It was a memorial of the work of creation that the seventh day was sanctified as a rest day for for man. It was designed to keep the living God ever before the minds of men as the source of being and the object of reverence and worship. Satan strives to turn men from their allegiance to God and from rendering obedience to his law. Therefore, he directs his efforts, especially against the commandments, which points to God as the creator. Protestants now urged the resurrection of Christ on Sunday and made it the Christian Sabbath. But the scripture evidence is lacking. No such honor was given to the day by Christ or his apostles. The observance of Sunday as a Christian institution had its origin in that mystery of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 Which even in Paul's day had begun its work. Where and when did the Lord adopt this child of the papacy? What valid reason can be given for a change which, which the scriptures do not uh, sanction? In the 6th century, the papacy had become firmly established. uh, established. Its seat of power was fixed in the imperial city, and the bishop of Rome was declared to be the head over the entire church. Paganism had given place to the papacy. The dragon had given the beast his power and his seat and his authority, Revelation 13.2. And now began the 1260 years of papal oppression foretold in the prophecies of Daniel and and the Revelation. 
Daniel 7.25 and Revelations 13.5-7, Christians were forced to choose to either yield their integrity and accept the papal ceremonies and worship or to wear away their lives in dungeons or suffer death by the rack, the fact, the, 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 the faggot or the headsman's acts. Now were fulfilled the words of Jesus. Ye shall be betrayed both by parents and brethren and kinsfolks and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my, na- for my name's sake. In Luke 21, verse 16 and 17, persecution opened up the faithful uh, with greater fury than ever before, and the world became a vast battlefield. For hundreds of years, the church of Christ found refuge in seclusion and obscurity. Thus says the prophet, the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand two hundred and three score days. Revelation 12, 6. So basically, the pope, the papacy is in power and they had taken away the Bible, which was the only mechanism through which we can reboot Jesus and to fight, fight the enemy. He took that away, set the world into darkness, which is why it's called the Dark Ages. And then oppress those who refuse to yield and compromise to him. And that is that in the you know, Dark Ages is a whole different. It's so it's, it's so much information about the Dark Ages. You could do years of seminars over it. There's so much that happened. And finally, here to end it, um, basically, God's people had to flee into the wilderness. This is where you hear about the wildernesses and, and, the, and those pe- groups of people that had that. They held true to the to the word and they did not compromise, even though they were being um, oppressed and, and even killed. The accession of the Roman church to power marked the beginning of the Dark Ages. As her power increased, the darkness deepened. Faith was transferred from Christ, the true foundation, to the Pope of Rome. Instead of trusting in the Son of God for forgiveness of sins and for eternal salvation, the people looked to to the Pope and to the priests and prelates to whom he delegated authority. They were taught that the Pope was their earthly mediator mediator, and that none could approach God except through him. Further, that he stood in the place of God to them and was their for to be implicitly obeyed. A deviation from his requirements was sufficient cause, uh, cause for the severest punishment to be visited upon the bodies and souls of the offenders. Thus the minds of the people were turned away from God to fallible, erring, cruel men, nay, more to the prince of darkness himself, who exercised his power through them. Sin was disguised in a garb of sanctity. When the scriptures are suppressed and man comes to regard himself as supreme, we need to look only for fraud, deception, and debasing iniquity. With the elevation of human laws and tradition was manifested the corruption that ever results from the the setting aside the law of God. And that's how it happened. Gradual commingling of Christianity and paganism. And as time goes on, and as the older people pass away, and their experiences that they went through the trials and fires, and your children who have been only experienced safety and security, and it's popular to be Christianity, those children became the grown-ups, and then they started to adopt officially Satan's will. Brothers and sisters, what is, what is happening right now? I did a sermon a couple months ago about the state of the church. And a quick summary of what that whole sermon was about was, as our older people are passing away, 
the church is dying. That was the complete summary. Our older people, the, they call it, uh, I don't know, the generation, the G generation. I don't forget what the, the, the generation before the baby boomers. That generation, as that generation has passed away, you have seen the degradation of Christianity and the church is emptying. Our kids who have known nothing but prosperity and comfort are leaving the church. Satan knows what he is doing. This is why Christ said in these last days, it's going to feel like nobody, the church isn't going to make it through. But he said it will make it through. But there's going to be a great falling away. That, these are the tactics that Satan uses to try to destroy God's church. And that is why we're experiencing the struggles that we go through right now. How many evangelistic series? How many projects that we go out to the community? How many things have we tried and tried and tried to bear little to zero fruit that we know of? We've done this so much that people have gotten discouraged and, and people don't even want to do this anymore because it feels like, why? Why even try? Nobody cares. But see, that's why we have to, as a church, we have to wake up and realize we are not fighting against men, but against principalities. We're fighting against Satan. And we're fighting against all these things he set up to distract and keep our kids and keep our communities confused, involved in what he's doing, so that when we go out, they don't want to listen. But there are people still out there who won't to know Christ. There are still people out there that's waiting on someone to share Christ with them. And we as Christians, as followers of Christ, we've got to go out there and we've got to find those people in these last days. Only then will the work be done. Because Christ is prolonging this because he doesn't want to leave not one soul that can be saved behind. And so that is what the church of Pergamos, that's what happened. That is what these seven churches of Revelation is about. It's, it was a prophecy. It was show, it was, he was telling the world what was about to happen. He was foretelling the dark ages. He was foretelling the, 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 the biblical law being reinstituted with the fourth and final commandment by the Seventh-day Adventist church being reinstituted. And then the last days that we're going through right now and the end times. He foretold it all. This is why when we go out and people want to know, give me proof. Can you prove? It's already been proven. It's in prophecy. And so the next church is a church uh, uh, by Mary. Theratir. Sorry. These names are ancient names, so I have a hard time with them. But um, now we're about to go into the, we're going to go into the dark ages. We're about to see what happened during the dark ages in the next sermon, um, probably in about three months from now. But um, hopefully everybody, you know, got a blessing from that because we can see how Satan works. We see his tactics and we can guard against it by not compromising, by recognizing what he's doing when he's doing it, because he's doing it today. All right. Bow your heads, everybody. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for giving us prophecy. Thank you so much for giving us the tools and the knowledge of how Satan works and how he operates and how he tries to to bring us down and to corrupt us and to change us and to mold us into his will. 
Lord, give us the power, the strength, and the boldness to stand tall for you in these last days when it's going to be very unpopular to be a true believer, to stand up and be uncompromising, even when we're, we're denigrated in the news and in the media and, the, and, and everybody's looking at us sideways. Lord, give us the boldness to stand true, just like your people who stood true through this dark time going in and had to flee into the wilderness. Lord, you said as the last days and the time of trouble comes, we're also going to have to flee. We're going to have to leave these church buildings and flee into the wilderness, Lord, because that is what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to eradicate the church. And so, Lord, I thank you so much. We all love you and thank you for what you have done in preparing us for these times. And may you come back soon that we might rejoice in heaven with you again. In Jesus' name, amen.